Good morning. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Well, most everyone that I talk to is anticipating joyful celebrations over the next couple of days and two weeks here, celebrating our Savior's birth. And I do hope you'll come to that Christmas Eve service we have, and we're going to have a special time. Many children in America are longing for and hoping for presents on Christmas morning. One gift American children are told to dread, of course it's in, you know, uh, traditional jest, I don't think anyone really dreads this, but it's the gift of Christmas coal. So songs and stories are told of children who are bad, who receive Christmas coal, and it's kind of a ridiculous yarn to spin, but anyways, where did that tradition start from? This morning our message is titled, The Hope of Christmas Coal. So where am I going with that? Some of you are, have been wondering that, I'm certain. Well, back in the 19th century, most homes were heated with coal, and especially in the cities. And so if you were uh, wealthy, you pretty much had an abundance of coal. You could heat your home and be comfortable. If you were poorer, though, coal wasn't cheap. So actually, it was a precious resource for you to have. And for the wealthy, uh, it was something that they took for granted. And so most children that were wealthy you know, didn't get coal for Christmas. They got things like candies and, and fruits and things like that. But for the poor, poor, actually, something like a gift of coal for a family would actually be a wonderful gift. It meant you could be warm. But you think about the Christmas carol. Remember Bob Cratchit? You know, he's in his office and he comes in and he's cold and he shuffles in there and he goes over to Scrooge and tries to get a piece of coal out. And, you know, Scrooge yells at him and tells him, no coal for you. You know, you're going to be fired if you do that. And it gives him a hard time. And so my point is, is that this idea of coal is something that is actually for people who are poor or at that time, actually was actually a good thing to get. Now, obviously, little children probably didn't hope for that in their stocking. Don't get me wrong there. But actually, it was a blessing for those who are poor. It meant a warm home. For those who are rich, it's something they took for granted. And so it was kind of a condescending thing that they would put upon people. You know, if you were poor, many times people saw that as you were a bad person. It's not true, but sometimes they saw it that way. And so the idea of bad kids get cold because they're poor. And that's kind of the idea there. But, but actually, if you were a poor child, you actually, or a poor family, you would actually enjoy that gift of Christmas coal. Well, we're not talking about that kind of coal here this morning. We're talking about the imagery of coal used in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 6. And that scripture verse right there in this passage gives hope for cleansing and for forgiveness. Now, you might have never read through this text and might have never thought about verse 6 and that being a coal of cleansing and a, or a Christmas coal. You might, have, might be wondering, even as you look at it right now, you might be like, what do you, how do you get that from this text here? But what we're going to see this morning is that there's hope that the Lord gives to Isaiah and then therefore to all of us of cleansing and forgiveness through this coal that is presented here and put onto the tongue into the mouth, I should say, of Isaiah. So today we're going to look at the holiness of God and look at the hope that we have for cleansing. So would you 
Go to Isaiah chapter 6 and look at verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter, which is only first, uh, 13 verses, so it shouldn't be that bad. But would you stand with me as I read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant." And houses without people, and the land is desolate is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bless the preaching of your word this morning. And may it be like a rain that falls upon soil and causes the soil to burst forth in fruit. May our hearts have faith like that and trust in you. God, may you use this scripture in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, the nation of Israel just had decades of prosperity. They experienced success militarily and wealth like they had not seen since the time of Solomon. The monarch who ruled on the throne before Isaiah chapter 6 was a king called King Uzziah. He was 16 years old when he began to rule. How many 16-year-olds do we have in here? We have any in here? Can you imagine having one of the 16-year-olds? There we go. There's our king over there. That got scary pretty quickly. 
And he reigned for 52 years, which means he was 68 years old when he died. And I won't ask who's 68 in here, but the Bible says that at the end of his reign, his heart was filled with pride for all that he had done over the years of his rule. His heart boasted in self-adulation as he praised his own wisdom and power. And I can imagine him ascending the steps of his palace, which would have overlooked the city of Jerusalem. And I can imagine him looking out to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west and seeing all the the countries that he had conquered. He had 300,000 soldiers, over 300,000 soldiers. He built fortifications. The Bible says that he built up uh, and immense towers and buildings in the city of Jerusalem. The Bible also says that he cultivated the land. The Bible says he loved the soil. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you can read of this account. He loved the soil. So there was valleys filled with vineyards and there were, there were other uh, hills topped with orchards. And so there's a very fruitful time. Food was in abundance. This was, a, it was an amazing, prosperous time for Israel, for Judah. And you can, again, you can read about his reign and. 2 Chronicles 26, but you can also read about his downfall. He looked at all that he had done, his years of reign, and instead of giving glory to God, he boasted in his own heart. In fact, he boasted so much, the Bible says he went into the temple, he marched up the steps, burst through the doors, stood before the altar of incense, and decided that he was going to mediate for Israel. He didn't care what God had said. He didn't even care what his... His, his teacher, Zechariah, that he had when he was a young man, he didn't care what he said. He decided that he was going to do what he wanted to do. The Bible says 80 priests came in to try to stop him, and he withstood them and demanded his right as king to be able to do this. And at that moment, the Lord struck him with leprosy. He was struck as unclean, and soon he died. Here was a Jewish king, who exalted himself as the king in the temple. The priest tried to stop him. His glory filled the region, but the Lord showed him who he truly was. He was not the holy king. He was an unclean man condemned for his sin. Now think about that and then go to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. And notice the contrast between what happened to, Isaiah, uh, to Uzziah and what happened to Isaiah. And Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Judah went from having this exalted, prosperous king to now uncertainty. Think about that. Their king, who had, was like the second Solomon, had now died. And now they were in uncertainty. And now you have this prophet Isaiah going around. He's saying, hey, guys, guess what? It's all over. Judgment's coming. God's going to wipe all of this out. Remember the imagery he gave in the first five chapters of the Israel was like these vineyards. They were like these orchards. But God's going to cut them down. He's going to burn them all. And that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to face the judgment of God. And as, I, as I think about these five chapters and even this first verse here about King Uzziah, honestly, I can't help but but hear the thread of America in there. Think about that. America, especially at the beginning of this year, we are, we're the most po- prosperous country to ever exist, that we know of at least, in this world. We have, the, we have a military that's unrivaled in the world. Probably the greatest military ever. 
we have had relative peace, even right now. We're having some countries go um, agree to peace in the Middle East. That's pretty amazing. But our country has turned its back on God. And from a human perspective, as Christians, from a human perspective, when we go, oh, what's happening in our world? We, it looks grim, doesn't it? We say, what's going to happen to our country? What's going to happen to our world? There's a lot of uncertainty when we, look to, when we look to human rulers and human governments, honestly, fear and concern and worry can come in and we can go, what's happening? But when we look to the king of kings and we put our minds on his kingdom, that worry and that fear goes away because we recognize that he's the one ruling. Jesus Christ is the sovereign. And I think that's really what God is doing here for Isaiah. He's saying, listen, Isaiah, here's the true holy king. Here's the true holy sovereign sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And so look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. He says that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here Isaiah was stunned by a vision of the Lord. This is a miraculous work of God to really translate him into some kind of other dimension. We don't know where Isaiah physically was on earth, but he was somewhere physically, but uh, there's some kind of uh, special vision, some kind of way God translated him, if you want to say, to another dimension, to be able to see the heavenly dimension. He was able to, to peek into the heavenly throne room and see God himself on the throne Throughout the book of Isaiah, he, he writes about this prophet, this, this Messiah king that's going to come. And what's amazing to think about is that he actually gets to see this king in Isaiah chapter 6. You know who this king is in Isaiah chapter 6? This is Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the nature of this king. How do we know this is Jesus? Well, there's a number of ways. One, one way we know that is John chapter 12. John tells us. John tells us in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things, and he quoted Isaiah chapter 6, because he saw his, referring to Jesus, glory, and he spoke of him. So this is Jesus pre-incarnate, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And look at verse 1, he says, he saw the Lord, he saw the Lord. Now, notice in your English translation, translation the name Lord is small caps, L, small caps, O-R-D. And that's done on purpose by our English translators. It helps us identify this Hebrew word as Adonai. Adonai is the most common Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament. I guess besides the generic name El, but as far as the specific name for God, it's the most common name. Adonai speaks of one who is the ultimate ruler, the sovereign being of the universe. So here Isaiah saw Adonai, God Himself, the king of kings, the one who sits outside of time, who sits outside of space, the transcendent God himself. Now, you might be hearing that. You think, well, I thought the Bible taught that no one could see God. So how is that possible? He's looking into the throne room of God and able to see, to see God. Well, we know that Jesus is God, right? Second person of the Trinity. There's one God, three persons, Jesus is the second person of that trinity. This is 700 years before Jesus comes as a baby and lives and dies and is resurrected. This is 700 years before that. 
And when he came and took on flesh, why did he do that? Well, the Bible says in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time, speaking of the Father. And the one and only God, who is speaking of Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. So God the Father is not seen, but God the Son, he takes on flesh so he can reveal the character of God. So if Isaiah is able to see God himself, this, therefore, is then none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus. And he's taking on some kind of human form in heaven before he took on permanent human flesh. So, so imagine this scene in heaven. The Lord is on a throne in a heavenly temple. He's high. He's lifted up. He's in this exalted position as ruler and sovereign. And it says his train fills the temple. His train really is the word hem. So it's the idea of the outer part of a garment. I don't have really a garment like that, but if I had a long flowing robe, the outer part of that garment would be called a hem. I guess this was as a hem right here, the outer part of that, uh, my shirt garment there. This was a picture, or I should say, this picture was the best way that Isaiah could really describe what he saw. I mean, he's looking at God and what he sees and what he describes is the outside of it, the, the hem of the glory of God. So the glory of God was so radiant and majestic that all he could do is really describe the hem of God's glory, the outside of God's glory. And as he looked above the throne, what did he see? He saw angels, seraphim, the Bible describes them. The text doesn't tell us how many there are. Sometimes people think of two, but actually it doesn't say that there. We know there's, there's more than one. And so I imagine there could be hundreds, maybe thousands. It could possibly be that there's millions of angels right behind the throne there, all behind the Lord sitting there. And they weren't there in an exalted position. They were there praising God and ready to serve God. Seraph means burning, so it's burning ones. So seraphs literally are burning ones. So these are angels that are on fire. Imagine that. And they're burning brightly with the holiness and glory of their creator. Their wings give us insight into the posture they had. Notice two wings cover their face. And why is that? Because even though they're perfect creatures, they are not able to look upon the holiness of God. Angels aren't. Uh, even though the perfect aren't worthy to look on, upon the Lord. Two wings cover their feet, which represents that their path is directed by God. They're in submission to him. They'd only go where he wants them to go. And then two wings cause them to move, which represents that they are there to fulfill the will of the Lord. So here are the angelic soldiers of heaven ready at any moment to do the work of righteousness on behalf of the Lord of hosts, or you could say it this way, the Lord of armies. You can see that in verse three. Now on June 6th, we remember the Allied day when they, on D-Day, when they went and freed Europe from the evil Adolf Hitler, June 6th, 1944. 132,000 Allied forces landed in France, eventually 2 million uh, troops went over, crossed over into France and freed those who were under oppression there. I've often wondered, what would it have been like to be a German soldier? You know, and you see all these ships out there, these planes are coming in, they're bombing. You see soldiers pouring off onto the beach. 
I mean, even though you're putting up a fight, you got to think, I'm toast, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is pretty good. Like, they're doing a pretty good job here. And I think it's kind of what, maybe to a small extent, that, that these guys felt as German soldiers, Isaiah felt in a big way, and that is he saw the holy armies of heaven ready to bring justice for their Lord. Think of the fear that went into his heart there. What are these seraphs doing? Look at verse 3. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They are worshiping the king. They're worshiping the Lord. In Hebrew, when a word is repeated, it's done so to show emphasis, to create emphasis. Usually a word repeated twice shows that this is something that's important. So Jesus said, truly, truly, or if you're King James, verily, verily, right? And so he repeated it twice to let them know this is something very important that's about to be said. Sometimes we do this in English. I grew up in the, the late 80s, early 90s, and we used a word that would create emphasis. It was the word way, right? And so you're like, hey, did you know something happened? No way, right? Does anyone remember this? And then what do you say in response to that? Way, yeah, yes way, okay, right? So, and then if you're like arguing with someone that how good you are at something, you say, I am way, way, way better than you. I don't even know what the word way really even means, right? But hey, it shows emphasis. And we repeat it a lot. It shows that you really mean something. Something is really important. So here are the angels shouting, in the most declarative way possible, God is holy. So these, these burning angels on fire are praising the Lord with this threefold repetition, holy, holy, holy. And repeating this attribute highlighted the, the certainty of God's holiness and the absolute uniqueness of God's holiness. And it's like they're announcing God, the Lord, is holy. He is the holiness, holiest. He is the only, absolutely true, holy one. The word holy means to, to separate, really to cut apart and then separate. So holy has a negative and a positive connotation. Negatively, it means that God is separate from evil. Really, literally, he, he cuts evil out and he cuts anything off that is imperfect Positively, holy means God is separated unto himself. So he is separated unto himself as the only true, perfect, transcendent being that exists. So the word holy sets God apart from everything else. He is the only all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, eternal, self-existing being being that lives without beginning or ending and is in need of nothing. That's God. That's the Lord. He's holy. Also, I think this, this threefold declaration of God's holiness praises the, uh, each person of the Trinity. And so those blazing angels shout out what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Host, the Lord of armies. Now notice the word Lord there. If you notice the word Lord there, you'll see that's in all caps. So again, the English translators did that on purpose to help us identify this Hebrew name for God. And what is the Hebrew name for God there? 
It's Yahweh, or sometimes people have said Jehovah. So he's the Yahweh of armies. This is a personal covenant name for God. So they announce this Yahweh, God of angel armies, he's holy. And they say the whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is the majesty of God's character. It's the radiant magnificence of God's holiness. Think about a a nuclear bomb that goes off. And think about that bomb as being the holiness of God and the brightness that goes from it. And think about what radiates the effect that goes out from that is the glory of God. So the picture here in heaven is that he's able to see God and there's the holy Lord and out emanating out from him, radiating out is the glory of the Lord and it fills the whole earth and everything God touches is glorious. So what's the result of this explosion of holiness here? Look at verse four. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So how did this vision affect Isaiah? Well, he cried out, I'm cursed. I'm cursed. That's what he means by woe is me. In fact, we're not going to look at this, but if you go back to chapter 5, over and over, he says, woe to you, Israel. Woe to you, Judah. Woe to you, the the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts will crush you in judgment. And so he went through their sins and said, woe to you. You're going to face judgment. And then Think about that and the significance of that as we look at chapter 6, verse 5. When he sees the holiness of God, how does he respond? He didn't say, woe to everybody else. He says, woe me. I'm the one who's doomed. I'm the one who's cursed. And that's what he means by when he says, I am lost. He's saying, I am ruined. I am doomed to die. So get, get the point of this here. Isaiah expected at that moment to be cast into hell from the presence of God. He looked upon the Holy One. He saw who he truly was, and he recognized that he should die and be separated from God. And the, the contrast between Isaiah and King Uzziah should be striking for you. Because both were in a temple. Isaiah, uh, King Uzziah was in a physical temple. Isaiah in the holy temple, but they were both in a temple and King Uzziah walked in. He says, I'm good enough to serve in here. I'm good enough to be in here. And God struck him as unclean. Isaiah went before the Lord and he says, I'm not good enough. I'm already unclean. And this, my friends, is the difference between a person who's eternally lost and a person who is saved. The eternally lost person believes, I'm good enough for God. They come before the Lord and say, I'm, I'm pretty good, Lord. I mean, I'm not as bad as that person. And look at, look at the things I've done in my life. And I'm, I kind of present that for you. And hopefully you'll let me into your presence. I think, it's, I think it's good enough. I'm a good person. That's the person who's eternally lost. But those who are saved are those who are crushed by their guilt. They recognize their sin. And they say, I have no hope except for one thing. And that is your mercy, O Lord. I read a story uh, about Billy Graham. He was on an airplane, and uh, I guess he flew commercial, 
So like every one of us, well, not maybe all of us, but like me. And he's on this plane, and he's getting on, and I guess there was a guy who had a little too much. I mean, I think the plane was starting to fly, so I don't know. Maybe he had two flights or something, but he had a little too much to drink, and he was sitting down. And he, was, he was saying some things, cursing, and he was being rude. In fact, the story even goes, I guess he told this story to Bill Clinton, so that kind of even makes it a little bit interesting. But anyways, uh, I guess this guy was kind of drunk there, and he was saying some things, and even some of the girls going by, he would kind of hit them on the backside, which today I think you get arrested for that. But anyways, he was doing it. So this guy next to him tried to stop him. And so he says, sir, you know, stop doing that. And then he pointed over to Billy Graham and says, sir, do you know who that person is right there? And the guy that was being rude, you know, says, well, I don't know. Who is that person? He says, that's the evangelist, Billy Graham. And this guy stood up and says, oh, he says, Mr. Reverend, put it right there. Your preaching has done me a lot of good. <laughs> and, you know, I think that most people, frankly, are like that drunk man on that plane, right? They look at themselves, they look at their life, and they think, I'm actually pretty good. And actually, the preaching has done me pretty good, right? But they don't see themselves as lost. Those who truly know Christ are first broken by the holiness of God because they see their sin. And in fact, notice that in the verse there, he says, for I am a man of unclean Lips. Why was Isaiah broken and destitute? He saw his sin. The lips of Isaiah really reflect the heart of Isaiah. And Isaiah perceived at that moment that what had come out of his lips during his lifetime was vile and unclean. He was crushed by the guilt of his lies and his gossip, his self-flattery, his sinful anger, his complaining, his griping, his fake prayers, his self-justification, all those things came before him at that moment and condemned him as being unclean and gross in the eyes of the Lord. And he was convicted that he, he was convinced that he was doomed to judgment. And again, this is a response of a person, the first response of a person who truly understands the nature of God. Why are we like that man in that plane? We don't see our sin. We don't see how bad we truly are. And frankly, I think it's because we're indifferent to who God truly is. We like to compare ourselves with other people and think, well, I'm not as bad as those people. Look who they voted for, right? Or we just self-justify ourselves in my, our hearts, or, or we self-atone. Well, if I do this, this, and this, and I'm, I'm a pretty good person, we don't think we're that bad because we really don't think about the holiness of God. My friend noticed he did not compare himself to others. He saw himself in the light of God's holiness. The holiness of God caused true brokenness and gave him a clear perception that he was doomed because of his sin. And also those around him, in fact, look at the, continue to look at that verse. Woe is me, he says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the Lord with his fiery angel army ready to execute justice for their king. The Bible says, there we go, a couple of the points. The Bible says that the Lord is a consuming fire. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. 
Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Fire is an instrument of light. It gives light. It's a blessing. But also it's an instrument of refinement. And in the scripture is an instrument of judgment. So what did Isaiah see? He saw a throne room that was blazing hot with a fire of holiness. And that fire gave light to reveal his uncleanness in his own heart. But also he believed that fire was going to come and consume him. But notice what happens instead. The, The fiery seraph who should come down and should consume him actually comes down and presents something else. So second notice, the hope of holy coal. Hope of holy coal. Verse 6, the Bible says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar. So the holy king dispatched one of his blazing angels, and he had this burning, flaming coal from the altar in front of him. Now, what was the altar there? What altar is he talking about? And the truth is, the text isn't really clear. We're not really completely certain what altar this is. Maybe just an altar in heaven. Maybe, it's, maybe there's some kind of altar that's a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. So maybe if there's some kind of altar in heaven that reminds them, back then, reminded them that Christ was going to come. Maybe it's still there. and reminds people that Christ came. We don't really know what this altar is, but some kind of altar that represents the sacrifice and so think about an altar. Think about what an altar, what an altar is. One would take a lamb and you would cut the lamb open. Blood would pour out of it. Then the lamb was placed on an altar and the altar had burning coals and that lamb was then set on fire. So here is some kind of altar and a, a coal that's on fire. And notice verse number seven. The Bible says, And he touched my mouth with that coal and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That animal on that altar represented the substitution, um, a substitution in your place. That fire was a picture of God's judgment for sin. And so the idea of the coal on the altar is that the coal represented God's judgment for sin that had been placed on another sacrifice instead of Isaiah. So you have an altar, you have a sacrifice on there, you have fire, the fire represents judgment, and in that fire there's a coal. So taking that coal off of that altar represented God's judgment had been placed upon another sacrifice. And then he took that coal and he put it on the mouth of Isaiah. And there God demonstrated that he had applied the work of that sacrifice to the sinful nature of Isaiah. So again, think about this, this heavenly altar with this holy burning coal. And God takes that, has an angel take that holy coal and apply it to Isaiah. Now the question is, we think about that altar, who or what is the sacrifice? What is the sacrifice there? Do this with me. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. This might be a familiar text to some. We know this as a prophecy of Christ coming. 
But also I want you to think of this text as a description of a sacrifice. Really of the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. And if you go through this text, what you notice here, you see a lot of blood. You see a lot of judgment happening upon a sacrifice. And you see these offerings taking place. So look at Isaiah 53. We're not going to read through the whole thing. But I just want you to notice the imagery of sacrifice in here. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced, speaking of this one that's going to come, this the servant of the Lord. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And that's the hope that someone would have in a sacrifice, that the judgment of God would be passed on to that sacrifice instead of them. But this is the sacrifice of the coming Messiah. Verse 6, we are all like sheep that have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid upon him, this other lamb, this, he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Look down in verse 7. Look at the middle of the verse. He's described as a lamb. He's like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. So here he's being crushed. He's being pierced. The sin is being placed upon him. And he's like a lamb. And then look down in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So it's actually God himself who is making the sacrifice. And then it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And of course, this wouldn't happen for another 700 years. But here he's foretelling, he's prophesying that there's going to be one that's going to come to be the sacrifice. Now go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Here we see an altar with the uh, coal that comes from an altar where a sacrifice has been given. And notice the effect of God's grace to Isaiah. God has taken the, the work of the sacrifice and applied it to Isaiah. And he says, or the angel says, your guilt is taken away. Guilt speaks of being responsible for your sin and therefore the condemnation that you deserve. So the promise here is that you're not going to be punished for your sin. And how is that possible? He says, for your sin is atoned for. That's an amazing word right there. Our sin, his sin, is atoned for. Atone means to cover a debt that you owe that has caused separation. To cover a debt that you owe that has caused separation. Now, let's say I was going to get a million-dollar loan from you, okay? We, we are praying that someday the Lord would allow us to buy a house around here so when the church gets bigger and the Lord provides all that kind of stuff, hopefully someday it will happen. So let's say I said, well, I want one of those homes on the hill. They're probably worth more than a million dollars, aren't they? Oh, okay, let's go for $2 million. <laughs> you give me a loan for $2 million, and then the next day you find out that I can't ever pay that back to you. <laughs> That's not going to happen. That, that debt would cause separation between us, wouldn't it? You'd, you'd probably be a little angry at me, maybe a little bitter if you weren't a Christian. But you'd maybe be a little bitter at me, right? And, and what would need to happen is that debt would need to be able to be paid to cause reconciliation. So that's, that's really the idea of atonement. Atonement means to pay the debt in full and then reconcile the relationship. 
So with this word, the angel makes it clear that Isaiah has been separated from God by a debt that he could not repay, but someone has paid that debt with a gift of grace represented through the coal upon his tongue. Well, who is that person? Who is the person who has atoned for him? Who is it? It's the holy king. It's the one that's before him, the holy king, which is an amazing, astonishing truth to think about. The astonishing reality of this text is the same king who caused Isaiah to scream in self-condemnation is the same king who paid the judgment for his sin 700 years later. And how did he do it? By being born, living a perfect life, and dying a death of atonement for us. And friends, Isaiah was doomed to hell, but he was given the gift of heaven. Isaiah was condemned to separation, but he instead was forgiven and he was saved by the work of the sacrifice of the king. This is really what Christmas is about. This is what we celebrate. Think about some Christmas verses Christmas really is a celebration that a king would come and would atone for our sins. Let me just say, I don't really know everything that um, Isaiah thought and how he understood all of this, all these texts that we're looking at in Isaiah. But I do know this, that God wanted his people to long for someone who would come and atone for them. And so that's why the angel tells Joseph that, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And what's the purpose of his coming? For he will save his people from their sins. He's that Christmas coal, if you want to say, that's going to come to save people, to cleanse them and forgive them. Think about Luke chapter 2, verse 11. It's declared, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior. Who is Christ? Who is Messiah? Who is the King? The Lord. The Lord. Each of us, each of us stands guilty before the Lord, condemned. If we truly understood the holiness of God, we truly understand that we are guilty and deserve separation and judgment and hell. But we're offered something amazing by Jesus Christ and it's forgiveness and it's cleansing. And how is that possible? Because God's wrath for sin was redirected from us to his son, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. Jesus left that throne, that glory, his holy, exalted position for this purpose, to come as a baby, to live a life as a man, to reject the temptations of sin, to live a holy and perfect life and to die as our sacrifice on that cross and to be gloriously resurrected. And the Bible promises those who repent and turn from your way, your idea that you're good enough, your own religious system, you turn and repent, you have faith in Jesus Christ that he is the sacrifice. The Bible promises that we are saved. We're saved. We're forgiven. And so last, let's look at the promise of the holy seed. Look in verse 8. Everything changes in verse 8. 
Isaiah went from being afar off and separate. Now, somehow he's closer. He can hear actually the voice of the Lord speaking. Sin is now removed. He stands at the, as one in the holy presence of God. And listen, he listens to the voice of the Lord. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord. That's, that's communing with God, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, Isaiah can commune with the Lord. He can hear the voice of the Lord. He can speak back to the Lord. And he says something shocking here. The Lord says, who can I send? And he said, here, hear me. Now, that should be shocking because earlier he was saying, woe is me. So something's changed here. And essentially what he's saying, he's saying, hey, look at me. (laughs) I'm down here. I want to go. This wasn't a statement of pride I think this was a statement or a response, really, of praise. It was, it was, look at me. Look what you've done to me. You've made me holy. Now, now I want to go serve you like these angels serve you. I want to serve you. Can I be that one to be sent? Can I be that one to go? Here am I. Send me. The ministry Isaiah had was not, in human terms, very fruitful. I mean, do you remember when I read the very beginning and verses 9 and 10, what he said was going to happen. Look at verse 9. He says, notice how God worked. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That's not a very encouraging message, is it? In fact, look at verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wait, he's going to preach, but God doesn't want them to understand? He doesn't want them to be forgiven? And frankly, I mean, that's what the text says. Doesn't it say that there? What verses 9 and 10 teach us is that Isaiah's ministry would be one where people would hear the truth, but they would reject the truth. And therefore, God would judge them by removing understanding from their hearts. Isaiah's ministry would be one where he would tell people about the Holy Lord, but they'd actually reject him and they would face judgment on earth and then judgment in eternity. And I think verses 9 and 10 should be a sobering text for any person who's running from God. Because we deceive ourselves to think that I can sin. Anytime I want to, I can just turn back to God. I can hear the truth of God, and anytime I want to, I can receive it. But actually, the the ability to hear truth, to understand it, and turn to Christ is actually a work of grace. You can't come on your own. And so when you hear the the word of truth, when you hear the work of Christ, and you decide to reject it, you should know this, that God might Stop working in your heart. Did you know that God's judgment oftentimes is to remove his work of conviction in a person's heart? And if God gives you light and you see your sin and you reject him, there might be a day when you don't get convicted by your sin anymore. There might be a day when God says, no longer you had your chance, judgment upon you, hear and don't understand. See and don't perceive. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive, which is verse 9, which is, which is what Jesus actually said to the Pharisees, right? He actually quoted this text 
And he applied it to them. You guys have heard the scriptures. And rightly it's said about you by Isaiah. This text right here. They ignored their sin. And the unfortunate reality for most of those Pharisees. Is that they face the judgment of God today. And so he says in verse 11. How long O Lord? I mean isn't that the question? Like really? How long is this going to happen? I don't think he's really questioning God. He's just saying like so what's the timeline here Lord? And so he says there. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is desolate. I'm sorry, it's a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will burn again like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. So what's the answer to his question? What's the answer to how long? Well, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a long time of spiritual blindness for the people of Israel. They're going to go to exile. It's going to go beyond that. But he gives hope at the very end. What does he say? There's going to be a tent. There's going to be a remnant that God's going to keep. So there's, what's, what's the hope in that? Well, there's going to be an Israel. It's not going to be completely annihilated. But there's actually something even more deeper than that, that, that there's a hope that's deeper than that. And what is that? The holy seed is its stump. And I think he's talking about the remnant of God's people he's going to keep, and so it's going to continue on. But also he's speaking of the fact that there's going to be someone who's going to come and redeem Israel. In fact, there's going to be someone who's going to come and redeem all of us. And who is that? It's the king that's before him. The holy seed is its stump. And here's the amazing truth about Isaiah chapter 6. The same holy king who appeared to Isaiah in verse 1 is the same holy king that condemned him in verses 3 and 4 which is the same holy king who cleansed him with holiness in verse 6, and it's the same holy king who will come as the holy seed that will be implanted in a woman, a young girl named Mary, a virgin named Mary, who will grow up and be the king that will save people from their sins. Isn't that amazing to think about? Remember Isaiah chapter 53? You don't have to turn there, but just think of this verse. The very beginning of that chapter, this verse says this, for he grew up before him, like a young plant, speaking of this Messiah that's going to come. So Israel is laid waste. There's judgment. All there are stumps left. But there's going to be one that's going to come up, like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. And he's going to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so now you can see that, that, that thread throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6, 13. There is this one that's coming. There's this hope that's coming, and it's the king. It's the king. Let me just end by helping us to think about this in regards to ourself. There is, there is a king who sits on the throne today. And his name is Jesus. He's resurrected. He's on the throne. He's directing everything according to his will. So, so church, we should have confidence in that. We should have a picture of this in Isaiah that Jesus is doing what he wants to do. If Jesus wants to, he can actually turn this country around. And that, you know, takes place through the prayer of God's people. Do you know that? God actually, Jesus Christ works, the, the Father works, the Holy Spirit works through the prayers of God's people. And so we should be praying, praying to, to the Lord. But also, his holy angels are on fire, ready to bring justice to this world. And it could come any day. Christ could come back any day. And so if you are without Christ in here, 
I plead with you, do not resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, but to seek Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Trust in him. And I think sometimes you pre- we preach a message like this, and I don't know about you, but I, as a Christian even, I can feel just the guilt and the weight from my sin. I think that's actually a good thing for us to feel that. But also then to turn and trust in the, the forgiveness and the peace that Christ offers to us. If your faith is in Christ, then you're saved, guaranteed, in the family of God, cleansed, promised eternal life. We can trust that's true and praise God for that truth. And the response of a person like that should be what? I want to serve Jesus Christ. It's great to see Brett here and their call to go to a place that is uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. But you know what, family and friends of church? Actually, I see that many of you are like that here as well. I mean, some of you have intentionally chose to stay in California, even though everyone else in the country tells you to move out. Well, all the South does in the Midwest. I think the the northeast and northwest, they don't really care. But you know, there's a sense where we stay in places that are uncomfortable because we want to see the gospel go forward. And, and the response that we have to the work of Christ in our hearts, we say, okay, it's not very long. Like, judgment's coming soon, but we've been forgiven. And so what do we want to do? Let's go tell the message of Christ. Let's go tell people about this holy one who, who offers forgiveness and cleansing from their sin. And so let me just encourage you over the next week or two of Christmas here to actually see yourself as a sent one by Christ. When we hear of Christ, the holy child that grew up to be the sacrifice for our sins, let's consider the, the, the calling upon our lives, and that is to serve him and say, Lord, here am I, here am I. Look what you've done to me. I want to go out and tell the message of Christ to other people. Let's bow in prayer. As we conclude this morning, I'm going to ask the musicians to come on up here. I want to give you a time to be able to talk to the Lord. And if you are feeling the conviction of the Lord for maybe a particular sin or something that you're struggling with right now, and you're a believer in here, remember the promise that we can go to the Lord. We can go to the Lord Jesus. We can confess our sin. He's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so let me encourage you, to go before the Lord right now. Maybe the Lord's working in your heart about your calling to go and serve the Lord, maybe here or maybe somewhere else. And I encourage you to respond in faith, trusting that God is wants you to be sent on behalf of him. Maybe you're in here without Christ and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart Where you're at right now, can I just encourage you right now to cry out to God, cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. I am condemned. I stand condemned before you for my own sin. There's nothing I can do to earn my forgiveness. I'm without hope unless you save me. And you promise that if I believe, I won't perish, but you actually give me a gift of eternal life. So cry out to him right now receive his gift. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the the light of the truth of the word of God. And I'm so fearful of some who reject it, who ignore it, who ignore the convicting of the Holy Spirit in their heart. 
And I think, God, there's probably some who could possibly be in here today or maybe listening online. And they are one of those ones who just keep saying no. I'll just keep hiding this sin. I'll, I'll just keep cherishing this sin. I'll, I'll respond to the Lord later. Oh, God, wake their eyes and their hearts up to the truth. God, withhold the judgment of, of blinding their hearts forever. I pray that, God, they will turn and repent. Pray for us as a church. Give us faith. Give us faith in you as our king, that you are on your throne, that you are doing what you will, and give us hearts of grace to serve you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.